Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CCW Safe podcast. I'm Justin Collett. I'm the content manager for CCW Safe. Today, we're joined by one of our brand ambassadors, JJ Ricasa. JJ's been with us for a while now, and we always look forward when he can come in and sit down and talk to us and share some of his knowledge, and we'll get some good stories, I'm sure. Welcome back, JJ. Good hey, to have you back, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's always good to be here. So one of the things that we preach a lot here is training, and that is what you do. And if we can just kind of go into a brief kind of history, backstory. Last time you were on, we kind of went all the way through it. But uh, how old were you when you started competing? When I started competing, I was just shy of nine years old, so 1988. Um, and that was in the Philippines? Yes, I was in the Philippines. It, it's, that, that's when it started for me. And really, the start of that training was about three to f- six months prior. Don't, don't quite remember exactly anymore, but about that. I remember it was a long time. I, my dad just told me, he's like, hey, if you want to do what I'm doing, drawing from a holster and shooting this gun, I want you to start dry firing. And we didn't know what dry, I didn't know what dry firing was. He just said, just draw from this holster, and I want you to learn the movement and learn how to reload the gun without pulling the trigger uh, or accidentally dropping any gun and stuff like that. Because when we do this live, you're going to do this fast. So he asked me to do it for at least three to six months, or as fast as he can do it. And it took me about three to six months to get to about his speed. So the goal was to get fast. So... I, I remember just almost dropping the gun constantly. Uh, uncomfortable. The movement was not was not something that I'm used to doing. The holster didn't fit me either. My my sister would hold it in the back for hours and just for me to just get it going. And so yeah, there was there was some interesting moments. But really, the the goal there was just to get familiar and learn to move with the gun fairly comfortably without dropping it. The scare of breaking the 180 or flagging anyone, and just understanding and familiarizing myself with the weapon. And once I was there, I told my dad, I said, "Hey, dad, um, I think I can." draw fairly fast now and he's like okay let me see it and he didn't watch me at all one bit he didn't correct me he just told me to do it and for some reason I, I want I just did it I, I could I think I know why um so at the time also I was doing martial arts JKA Japanese karate it was um a big big deal in the Philippines Shudokan type karate and I, every time I went there to train I was getting my butt whooped they would hit you they didn't care they would punch you in the chest they'd kick you in the leg correct you with sticks and it was it was hardcore right it was great training but as a kid who wants to get beat every day two to three hours a day right so it was either that or learn shooting and compete in shooting as opposed to competing in karate I was getting hit back in shooting no one was shooting back and so I remember I asked my dad like hey this competition thing when you're shooting is there anyone shooting back and he's like no just shooting targets and points that's what I want to do right I was competitive so I wanted to do something so I think that was the main reason and so I started to just train up hard as hard as I could and my dad watched me one day and he's like whoa he goes, when did this happen? I said, it's been happening like this for a while. But um, I wanted to make sure I was sure. He goes, let me see your reload. And I did a reload. And he's like, ah, because that's impressive. And I was like, all right, that's a good sign. I said, let's go to the range. And since I've been doing that, I haven't shot a real gun at all. So the, my dad loaded it up. It's a 45, just, almost, just, just barely nine years old, or not even. Um, to go to the range, my first shot, and I'll never forget this. I went and drew, drew it the same exact way, took the safety off, pulled the trigger, boom, the gun left my hand, went over my head, and I ducked because that gun almost hit me, and I grabbed it back, and I said, holy smokes, like, what is that? And my dad goes, don't let go of the gun. He goes, good job, but he goes, you, you got to control the gun. And I'm like, holy smokes, I didn't, I didn't know what this was. I didn't, didn't understand. Expect yeah, I hit the hell out of the target, right, because I've been doing the iron sights and all this. Hit it, and he goes, all right, hold on harder to the gun. So now, obviously, initiated, you know, the shock. Same thing, held it, and now I'm dumping the gun and hitting in the ground and dirt. And he's like, where did this come from? And we didn't know how to fix it. Everything was trial and error, but that's where it started. And then it just worked harder and harder and harder. So that leads into kind of one of the things we talked about before this, and it's, it's one of the goals personally that I have that I would like to get our members into is how powerful dry fire is. So, like, the first time you ever fired a gun was from the draw and to an A-zone hit or what, whatever your target was at the time, and that was all through dry fire. Yes. There was no live fire. And that, to me, we have a fair amount of people come out here to shoot all different skill levels. And, and within a magazine, you can tell the guy who dry fires. Yes. Or the person. Yes. Like, it, it just... It, it's unbelievably powerful. Um, 
So if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, for the average guy, and there's this kind of impression that if you're gonna do dry fire, you're gonna, you know, it's gonna take up all this time, you gotta have all this stuff, you gotta have a special timer, you gotta have targets, that's not the case. Um, so like, what, what is your philosophy on dry fire? You don't need anything special. If you have a gun, you can dry fire. Um, when I started, we didn't have target boards or we didn't have timers um, it, because they were expensive in the Philippines. And we didn't have the resource either to get it. It was, everything was imported in. Um, so anyway, it took us a while to get it. A lot of it was just picking out certain targets. Like I, I'm looking around this room and I'm going, light switches was one of my first targets that I did. And I use that as a point of reference to, to be able to draw my gun or line my sights up, pull the trigger. I just, I remember my dad drew a perfect picture and I just repeated that over and over. So what I was working there now, I didn't know what I was working then, but now looking back and I've been doing it for so, so for 30 years or so now, it, it, I was working on understanding what the visual stimulus that I need to, 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 to find a good shot on target without any kind of percussion recoil or explosion and just doing that over and over. Once I'm able to understand the stimulus I need to respond to, the less and less I started, I started to think about it. Mm -hmm. So all I was doing was repeating the movement over and over and over. And for that, when I was doing it, I was doing it hours at a time. You don't have to do it hours at a time. They, it's, if you don't have a goal to chase, it's, it, dry fire becomes really boring. That's why a lot of people like to shoot because they got that instant gratification or at least seeing whether they're hitting or not. Dry fire, you don't get that. It's the invisible gains that you gain and develop that, you, that will benefit you when you actually pull the trigger in the live range that you don't notice, but you have to do hundreds of reps to do it, to get comfortable with it. And what you'll do is you'll start to smoothen out your reps. You'll start to be able to clean out your movement as opposed to fumbling all the time. You'll start cleaning that out because you're, you just do it so much that you know the process, you know how to do it, and you're repeating this consistent process. And when you repeat certain things over and over, you end up memorizing that movement, right? So that's why, like I, to me, for a dry fire, you don't need, you don't even need a holster. Uh, most of us don't need a holster. The guys that conceal, you don't have to draw from a concealed holster or anything like that. The biggest thing to me as a concealed carry is the ability to be able to get that hand on my, the gun, the, my hand on the gun. And once I have it, I can draw and punch out and point at a certain thing and execute certain movements fairly quickly, finding my sights and pulling the trigger. To me, that's more important because as a CCW carrier, um, some of my previous experiences, I felt like situational awareness was just as important as learning how to manipulate your gun. If you understand the situation, you, can, you might be able to sneak that and do a convert draw, right? And then get the gun in your hand. Once I had my gun in my hand, whatever scenario I was in, I was able to react fairly well. Um, but understanding also that I can get away from the, from the situation if the situation dictated, I can get away from this. I don't need to be here, especially as a civilian. That's not my job. My job is to keep my, me and my family safe and, and, and everyone that's close to me. Um, as a law enforcement officer, I had a duty to act in, in regards to making the, the, the public or whatever I'm at to be safe. So different scenarios, different situations, understanding the area that I'm in. But I knew that if I can get my hand on my gun, I can do this fairly quickly. I can do this fairly quickly and I can execute whatever I need to execute. So that's, to me, dry fire is so important in that regard that you don't need to. All you need to do is get the hand on, your, um, hand on the gun and just point at random things and just understand how to line up that sight. And that's, that's so big and huge. So when you're presenting the gun, are you target focused when you're shooting irons? So you present the gun, are you looking at your point where you want to hit, so you're target focused? And then as the irons come up, does your focus shift to the front sight? Or how, how does your focus work on irons? So there's layers to that. Um, I, it started out with understanding what a sight picture looked like. So I, my dad drew it out, right? Perfect, equal light, equal height type thing. And I'm like, all right, how does that relate and translate on target? If I do it like this, where does it hit on target? And he had a six o'clock zero. I'm sorry, a lollipop zero. So mm -hmm. it was one of those where if you line up your sights, it would hit just over the front sight. So he was like, this is your target, this is what you do. Okay, sounds good. And I just, so I would look at this, the target center of the, the the, the light switch, point at it, look at the sights, and look back on the target, and look at the sights again before it broke it. I did that several times to understand like what I'm looking at versus what I'm looking at target. And then I would do that over and over, and I didn't realize this, and, uh, but eventually that looking back and forth, the transition from target to sight to target to sights to target to sights, it became a lot more seamless later on. It just became a smooth transition where I would be target focused, and then as soon as my sights got in there, I would make those final adjustments and break the shot, right? And I would, I would have a conf confirmed good shot on target is what I did. 
And so I would do that over and over. And then I would pick big targets, small targets, big targets, small targets. And I realized that the bigger targets, once I understood the relationship of the target and the sites on target and what, where it needs to be, what we call now the site picture, the relationship between the two, once I understood that, I realized that if I had a bigger target, I had a larger margin of error, I didn't need to be so much site focused. I can kind of have a blurred site picture and then have a little bit more target focus, which allowed me to be able to act fast, faster at least. And, and whenever it became smaller, I needed to confirm my sites a little bit. So I would go back a little bit more to site focus and then, and then just kind of confirm where the sites and the target would get a little bit more blurry. So as a kid, I learned early on that certain targets I can get away with seeing more target, making that sure that's clear with a blurry site picture. And then certain targets, smaller targets, accuracy dependent, I would need to confirm my sites a little bit more than the target. And then, and then I did that back and forth and understanding those two relationships with the type of target I was in change my drive fire and then I started to act accordingly basically. So when you shoot irons today, are you mostly target focused unless it's a tight shot and you need to just have that confirmation on a tight shot? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 100%. I'm, so I've also been able to expand my range. With iron sights, I'm able to get out to about 30 feet away from a target and still be target focused and get away with good hits on target. Alpha, well, was the, the, the mm -hmm. alpha is my, my, my standard. By the time I get further than that, I would need to start picking up a little bit more of the sights, right? So and now it's maybe a flash front sight focus mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to rear and front, right? Just kind of looking through the rear and using the front as my dictating factor. And then the 15 yards and out, I'm mostly seeing right through the window of the rear sight, a clear sight picture and picking out a blurry target. And that's, that's how I use it, especially steel targets. This is dependent on the size and the distance I am on target. But basically if I have an open target, no nothing on it, it's a big target. If it's 15 yards and out, I start becoming more sight focused. 15 yards and in, I start becoming a little bit more target focused. That's something I, I've been working on and it's uh, recently took a class with Ben Steger yeah. and uh, Matt Pronka, and they have talk about levels of confirmation. And that's something I've been working on. And it's something I see in less experienced shooters is, I still do it sometimes, is the tendency to over-confirm, yes. especially on closed targets. It's like they, you, you, you want to see too much. So by, when you do that, you waste time. And... Uh, what is your, how do you get people through that stage of, of like, how do you get, just make them shoot fast and then figure it out or how do you do it? It's really about learning and it's a lot of it trial and error for me. Um, to me, a lot of it is all about learning what I can get away with, right? Because I'm always trying to get faster and faster and faster. So uh, having some sort of standard will allow you to be able to chase that standard and understanding what I can get away with. So at five yards, I know what kind of sight picture I can get away with. Maybe no sight picture I can get away with. I can just point the gun. Seven yards, I need a, some sort of looking through. A little bit more information from the gun. Maybe a quick flash of a front sight and pull it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Could be as long as it's anywhere near this area, mm -hmm. I know I'm going to hit alpha, or the, the alpha that we talk about in the target. And then 10 yards, maybe I need to start looking through a little bit, picking out a little bit, not, not, not as loose, maybe a little tighter of what it is, right? Knowing what I can get away with. And that's a big thing about pushing yourself and having some sort of measure. Now that when you're talking about speed and trying to do things faster, understanding and using a, the use of timer, you putting yourself in a standard like, hey, I can do a draw from seven yards from the holster or not even from the holster. If you just want to go from here and there, I can do it in one second. How can I beat that and still maintain a level of accuracy on target, alpha on target? And, and having that standard with the hits and having that standard with the timer will allow you to chase both. So now you go, all right, can I, if I make it quicker, I'm just going to put, um, and punch and fire the gun quickly, not seeing anything. What was my result and what was my time? And so now you go, all right, I, I need to pick something up. I didn't like my results, so I need to pick something up. I don't like this 50-50 chance where I get lucky one shot, the next shot it's off the target. I need to figure out something. So the only thing that will allow me to guide is my ability to point a consistent linear pattern or dropping some sort of sight, waiting till I see some sort of sight picture. So you play that game and that balance of accuracy and speed, right? To me, my accuracy speed is, is a, a big little rectangular thing. So mm -hmm. at seven yards, I can get away with a lot. From here to here, I can probably fire within the alpha in half a second or 0.6 seconds or something like that. But from the draw, it's a little bit different. Now I can get, I can get it out maybe in 0 0.4, 0 0.8 seconds, I can get a good shot in the alpha, move that back to 10 yards, and now it's 0.9, maybe about a second. Further, it gets a little bit more and more and more because I need a little bit more confirmation. So the biggest thing on that one is understanding what you can get away with per shooter. Per shooter is a little bit different. 
a lot of people have vision issues, right, with iron sights or red dot. Iron sights, you have to see, you have to have good eyesight a little bit to be able to transition. Not necessarily good eyesight in regards to 2020, the ability to go from transition focus from target to sights to be able to capture whatever you need to capture. A lot of people will lock in and it takes them a long time to capture their sights. So sometimes, even just the start of it, I won't look at hard on target. I'll have a blurred sight picture already. I'll already make an adjustment on my sight picture. If I'm seeing, if it's a threat, let's just say it's a threat or it's a target, make it simple, right? Target, okay, cool, I'm gonna draw and fire that. My eyes will start to come in in a specific area because I've done it so much, I can have a feeling of what the tension and flexion that I need to do in my muscle or my eyes. So by the time I bring it up, I'm close to it. I don't need that big, huge flexing to my eyes to focus into this particular area. So there's little tricks and stuff like that that I do to be able to do it. But a lot of it is understanding what you can per person what they can get away with because some guys like you have a really good presentation because you've been doing it for a long time that you will be able to get away with not without seeing much mm -hmm. and then not without seeing much can only take you so far and then now we have to understand where do you fall apart and where do you break and then now let's see as an instructor to me I start looking all right, at this point what are you seeing right to me as a speed target I'm looking for what the shooter is seeing on a on a accuracy target I'm looking for what the person is feeling on their trigger a little bit more. So I, I focus more on trigger the further we go. But in regards to close distance type stuff, I'm like, what are you seeing when you're shooting this shot? And what were you able, how are you able to keep this group? Or if it's sporadic, I'm like, you're not seeing enough. I just need you to pick up the sight picture a little bit and see what you can get. Whether it's a bad sight picture, right? And when the more you look for that, the better your presentation becomes because you'll automatically go, that wasn't good. Even though I saw it, that was pointing high left. I'll make that con con conscious adjustment of maybe squeezing my gun or tens tensing up my left hand a little bit more to bring the sights back down on my first shot and stuff like that and then all those things kind of lead to like tension and grip and understanding what I need to tense up or what I need what kind of pressure I need to grip instead of a lazy point and then the sights are like this or up whatever depending on the grip angle on the gun so a little different factor but to me it's all about learning what each person can get away with and putting yourself on a standard with hits and a standard with time putting those two worlds together will help tremendously cut out cut out a lot of those processes and stuff like that you just chase the time and a hit, that's it. How important do you think it is um, for people to let themselves fail? That was a big thing. And I, I trained some, lo some local guys and one of the biggest things kind of is to let them have that freedom to let the wheels come off. Let's push past. If you're not failing, you know, you're not pushing limits, you're not, you're not exposing your brain to what fast looks like. Um, and one of the things for me that Jedlinski does, he was out here and did a class. He has a thing called a three and two drill. And it's like three yards. You draw, you fire three in the A zone and two in the small alpha, the head box, the credit card. And the standard is two seconds. And so draw five rounds, two seconds. You can't really fool around Pretty and stuck, make yeah. the standard. But we started doing this, and then after the class I was doing, the reason I liked the drill was it really focused, I've always had a not great draw. So jumping the buzzer and just hand speed, just moving quickly, uh, and that drill's good for that. But what I started noticing was, I was starting to shoot that drill in 1.5, 1.6, but when I was on, my head box shots were touching right on the A, and it was just, it was almost like if I just let go. Yeah, instinctive. And my eyes drove yeah. to that spot. Yeah. And if I just didn't do anything, yeah. the bullets go right where you look. Because you're three yards away. Sure. You know what I mean? It's like there ain't a whole lot of other places they can go if you don't move the gun. Yeah. And, uh, but if I wouldn't have let myself be like, this doesn't feel, this feels too fast. Like, this doesn't feel right. But I let myself do that, and over a period of time, it, it, it's... It's really helped, and, and that's a, you, you could do it with a bill drill. You could do it with with any drill, but just that letting yourself fail, I think, is something really important, and a lot of newer shooters don't. Yes, so, so I'm I definitely agree with that. My whole life is all about trial and error, failing, and understanding that that didn't work. To me, the big thing is in the beginning as a newer shooter, I remember encountering a lot of a lot more failure than I had successes. So. 
failure wasn't something I tried. It was just part of the process. Like, oh, dang, that didn't work. Let me do this again. I mean, goodness gracious, that didn't work. Let me do it again. Because we were always chasing time and, and all this. And you start building this natural time clock in your head if you're putting a timer on your, on your training. So it was always happening. And then once I started seeing more successes, and what I see now in pattern is that the more specialized the unit that I'm training, the less they want to fail because they've, they've mastered a certain set of principles and techniques that they just repeat that over and over and over, and then they'll just start working on index cards and then all that stuff, right? And then, like for example, like SWAT, SWAT team, they have a very stringent process or thing in place where, a penalty in place where they go, if you miss a target, it's a really bad deal, and then you get, it's looked, it's looked frowned upon within the unit, or they do physical challenges and, and punishment and all that stuff, right? So. They, start, they stop letting themselves go, so they end up cutting themselves and they end up holding themselves back in progression. I feel like there's such a thing where at a certain point in your career, like my point in career now, where I'm, I, I need to still feel that failure. I do have a lot more successes now than I do failure, and it's almost like I need that controlled failure. And that controlled failure happens in practice so I can fix things whenever it's time to execute in, in, in matches, right? Whenever it's time to execute, when you're against the clock, when you're against a threat, it's, basically you're against the clock also because that threat's going to try to do something to you if you take too much time and whatever. Weird things start to happen. I don't want that to be the first time I have to go really fast when it's time for me to execute well and perfectly. I want to have done it at least a thousand, a million times in a range by myself, whether I'm shooting the gun or whether it's just drive by. I want to have done that a hundred times already so it's not my first time trying to go fast when it's required for me to do things fast. Right, so those are the things to me that the failure is a good thing there. A controlled failure is a really good thing later in your career. In the early part of your career, you'll encounter those failure naturally. So <laughs> that's a fail, really good thing. Out, yeah. yeah. And with your in your particular example, I think it's really good because you at that point, how how long have you been shooting a pistol? Uh, mid nineties. Yes. And how Seriously. what's your you're you're a master class grandmaster, almost a grandmaster, isn't not, it? Not a GM. Oh, you're, but you're almost. You could have reached it a long time ago. Yeah. You were chasing it hard, right? You you had the manipulation of a GM. You've developed that thing. So at that point, you were. You're, this is a crazy thing because I've, I've I've worked with you as well. You have this. This is like this is a good target. This is good for you at speed. And then all of a sudden, we when I try to um, give you some sort of um, challenge, you go real tight. And then I go, hey, man, that's too tight. That's too over, too much confirmation. Let's loosen it up. And you go loose, too, too loose. Right? The goal is to be able to match the control and out of control space. Yep. So I want to be able to bring that in. This from, from this tight to this tight, still effective rounds on target, depending on what you're working with. Officers, maybe this. For us competition guys, we got to keep it this. But you are either this or this. And I wanted that medium, right? And that's a challenge for you. But basically, you needed to push yourself because you've been so... You've been training a lot. You've been teaching a lot of guys. And so you, every time we teach a lot, as an instructor, we do our demos at 80%, 85%. And that's why when I do my demos in my class, I usually try to go at 90, 95, because I want to know if I fail too, right? And uh, I don't want to just be perfect all the time. I want to make sure that I'm running the gun hard and to check myself, because if I'm constantly, I was working in an academy a long time ago, and then just every time we did demo, no, you're not allowed to make a mistake. And so we shot it as perfectly as we could. And what you did was you find that as your comfort zone, and you're no longer leaving that comfort zone. And when you're fine there, you, and you stop progressing as you're shooting. So that's always a big thing, that failure is a good thing to have uh, in any of your training regimen. All right, so you mentioned earlier, uh, and for those who don't know, uh, you were a federal law enforcement officer for a while. Uh, can you tell us what's the story on that? What agency did you work for and what did you do? Yeah, so I worked for Department of Homeland Security. I worked as a federal air marshal. Um, got, was able to get lucky enough to get jump in that program early on and, and had a, a pretty good impact w within the training side of it and also as an agent myself. So it was it was really, really um, dynamic field. And it was a weird thing because it was, that was my first time being in law enforcement, but I was playing clothes, where meaning I was... I, you couldn't tell, right? I was an officer unless I, you, you, unless I needed to act out. So we had a cover story and stuff like that. And that was kind of funny because I used to think we were undercover, but there's a big difference between plain clothes and undercover. Undercover is dangerous stuff. Yeah. Even though we were doing some dangerous stuff because the, the saying was it would get hot and windy real quick if we mess up, meaning the plane would blow up <laughs> and stuff like that. And it gets hot really and hot and windy. <laughs> so it would go from zero to 100 miles an hour because, you know, it's like that kind of anti-terrorism deal, uh, the threat that we were dealing with. Luckily, nothing ever happened. Um, dealt with a couple of drunks. I fought a guy in the plane one time, got an arrest, um, and, then, and then got my but handed to me because he was a bigger dude. Really? But I was able to handle and finish it. And the guys, they got, my team was just laughing because they were like, that's your first arrest. And I said, 100%. But my, my 
my heart rate was so high and I couldn't even get the affidavit paperwork out and the witnesses and the flight attendants. It was just like a mess, right? So I could only imagine. Well, you got to tell the story, man. So how'd you get into a fight on an airplane? So it was a, uh, so we were sitting and it's coming back from, I don't, I, I don't know if I can say specifically where we're coming back from Europe, basically going home to New York and a few hours into the flight, we hear a scream mid galley. I look up, see a flight attendant run by me. I'm like, oh, shoot. Looked at my partner. My partner was like, hey, check that out. So I went to go back and I said, hey. So did the flight attendants know? Yeah, they know. Yes. Okay. They know who we are and where we are and stuff like that, right? So I go, hey, everything cool? And she was like, ah, no, um, this big guy um, is robbing and stealing. And I'm like, okay, he can rob, steal, whatever he wants. He's stealing all this liquor and he's drunk and this and that. I'm like, okay, you guys handle that, right? As an air marshal, I don't want to jump into anything unless I have to. I just, all I want to do is go home and keep the plane safe. That's my goal. Keep, make sure the whole plane, 400 passengers, whatever, is safe. Flight attendant was like, well, he's a really big guy. I'm in fear of my life. When you say I'm in fear of my life, I have to essentially activate because I'm like, ah, oh, you just said the secret word. Like, what, what are you doing? Green light, red light. No, this is not good. So she was like, I'm in fear of my life. I'm like, gosh, darn it. Can you call the pilot in command? Because I have to t tell him now, let him know that he's the boss in the plane. He's, it's, his, it's his thing. We're in international waters. Call the pilot in command, let him know what you're saying and what you're experiencing and let him ask him if he wants us to do something, right? Like one more layer, flight of captain was like, nope, let him have it. <laughs> good Lord, all right, sounds good. So like, we hatched up a plan, called my partner. I'm like, hey, dude, we got this, this is what happened. He's like, why are we getting involved? I'm like, I know, just a drunk, he's stealing stuff, but she, oh, she, he tried to hit her and apparently she was really afraid and that's why she came out storming. She goes, all right, he tried to hit you? She's like, yeah, he swung at me. And I'm like, ooh, this guy's a bad guy. All right, sounds good. He goes, this guy's a former NYPD and former Marine. Um, I think he was a Marsoc guy. He looks at me and he's like, you got this, Jay? He goes, you ever, <laughs> you ever cuffed anyone? I was like, nah. He goes, you got this. This will be you. This will go on your record. I'm like, heck yeah, let me do this. And he's like, by the way, don't kill anyone. I'm like, what do you mean? Like all of, we've done training was to hurt someone, end the threat, and finally, you know, do as fast as you can. He's like, he's like, just figure out how to do it and whatever. I'm like, all right. How so old were like, you when this went down? 20... 29, 30. Oh, that was yeah. 2000. Still young. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Young puppy. So I'm like, get nervous. I'm starting to rehearse what I need to say. Ah, please, uh, you know, turn around. And I'm like, all right, coughs. And I'm like, it's all set up and the way you carry, right? So I'm like, all right, this is going to go in my left hand. My right hand's going to be, angry. my gun's there, like reviewing everything, right? Like taking things off that I don't need and whatever. So anyway, we hatched up a plan to bring him back to the plane. Like, hey, tell him that you're going to give him a big bottle of tequila or vodka. <laughs> He's going to come to the back of the plane because the back of the plane is where we're set up, right? He's going to come here and then meet us and stuff like that. And then we'll just arrest him and take care of it from there. She's like, yes, I got this. So she goes over there, tells the plane, and we see him. He gets up, I'm like, man, it's a big, thick guy. So I get up and I go down my galley. You know, we do our own certain things. They get in position while I deal with stuff where they can still see me, but no, one, no other passengers can see. And if anything does go down, that was a ruse. The plane is still covered with my other teammates, stuff like that. There were several of us. So... He comes back, and I remember him coming back, and his head is hunched down, and I'm like, golly, he's not, that's a big freaking dude. <laughs> and I got so fixated, and he comes up to me, and I'm standing there. I'm the only one now. The flight attendant's like blocked him with the carts, and I'm like, uh, hey. And I took my tack badge out, and it's just hanging. I'm like, police, turn around. You're under arrest. And he didn't speak English, and that was even the worst thing. And I'm like, wow. Hey, can somebody translate? And the flight attendant is like, uh, no, he doesn't speak. We don't know what he speaks. I'm like, just say German stuff. You say, you're one of our translators. Just say it. And then said it. He goes, what? No, nothing. Not, he didn't want to say anything. And he knew he was getting arrested because he's facing the cop. And I'm like, all right, listen. So I took my cuffs out. And I remember taking it out going, holy shoot, this is not what you're supposed to do. Because now I have a cuff commi uh, committed on one hand. If I have to fight him, I have to let this go. And now I'm whatever. And I picked it up. And he's like, and he like looks at it and he like swats it away. <laughs> I was like, gosh, darn. I'm like, so he swats it away. So I'm like, hey, don't disrespect this cop. Right? And it's like, I don't know what to say, what else to do here. So I'm looking around, running out of options. And my partner, man, good on him. He didn't hesitate. This is this is a big difference when you have a, a veteran guy that's experienced and knows what he's doing. He's done a lot of this arrest in, 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 in the streets as an NYPD guy. And then I'm like new fresh guy. He comes in, just flies all over my corner, takes his neck and I think it throws both knuckles or whatever knuckle into his mandibular area and or not mandibular, whatever this thing is right here, pressure point, and starts jamming it in there. So as soon as he jams it in there, this big guy kind of crumbled and like swipes him like this. As soon as he swipes him like this, I saw that shoulder. I remember grabbing it and shooting, and so I'm now over there, I'm grabbing it and I crank it, and so now he's 
hunched over. My partner goes, he goes, Jay, take over the rest. Let me go back. I got your six. I'm like, God damn it, not in a fight. Like, I didn't even mean it. He just started this fight and this guy. So I'm riding on this guy's shoulder. I have his arm here, chicken wing in it. And I'm trying to crank it. And he's, he's sitting there like this, trying to look at me and trying to pick me up. And I finally, he was trying to, he was about to get up because he was so big. And I can feel how light I am to him because I'm attached to him. Now I need him as hard as I could in his leg. So he would drop right back down. He, he dropped back down. He screamed. And I'm like, Stay, settle down. I remember reaching over, trying to grab his shirt because he had a long sleeve shirt on. I'm grabbing it over and I'm looking. I'm like, hey, give me your other hand. Give me your other hand. I'm like, fudge. I don't know where my cuffs went. I'm like, flight's in it. Like, Joe, give me your cuffs, whatever. And then Joe like throws it on the floor. So I'm like, gosh darn it, I got to get that. So I'm like, hey, and I'm talking to him. And he swings from his right hand. I don't remember what, but something hit me. Boom. And I'm like, oh, fudge. And I remember just looking down. I see his blood comes out into his shirt and I just got mad and I cranked as hard as I could and I yanked it. And I don't know how, but I was able to get this cuff and now he's screaming. I'm like, I don't give a care. Now I'm bleeding. I'm going to escalate this. And I remember shooting the cuffs over to his wrist and it wouldn't lock in because it's big Too enough. Big. <laughs> yeah. So I'm now like pushing and do, literally like doing everything wrong, right? I'm trying to hump it, push it with my hip to click something and I caught some of his skin and I remember just click once and I remember Joe's cracking up and I, I, I remember just him laughing in the background he's like don't harass him don't just start humping him also I'm like dude Joe and I'm screaming and I'm trying to stay professional I'm like police and I kept saying stop resisting stop resisting right that's, the whole, that's what we were trying so he just started coming out I'm screaming at the top of my lungs and I'm just repeating and finally I got one click and I held the cuffs and I got got his other hand and it wouldn't go like I'm like uh, where's the other cuff? And then flight attendant brings me my cuff, and I got two cuffs on him. Finally got him down. I'm like, goodness gracious, like, what did it hit me? And then finally I saw his right hand. He had a camera hanging that's busted up. That's what hit me. He couldn't reach me, but the camera swung over and hit me in the face. And so busted up my lip and stuff like that. And I'm like, you, I was like, man, he, this didn't have to be this. And he didn't speak English, so he didn't, he just looked at me like baffled. He's like, vodka. He kept asking for vodka. I'm like, no, bro, like, you're going in jail. So anyway, that was my, my story. And yeah, we landed, and they basically, I think the AUSA didn't want to prosecute. They just sent him back and oh, reported man. him that same day. He had so like, all he took was a little bit of an ass whooping. And, yeah, you know. I got my ass whooped. I don't think he took anything. He just got one leg kick, and that was it. Goodness gracious. So it's hard to believe now. We're at that age where we both say, you know, we remember, Gosh. you know, 9-11 and yeah. the, the, not so much remember, but remember the before, Yeah. you know, and then how much of a sea change that was for the whole country, but especially the air marshals, because they poured a ton of money into it, ton of resources. They expanded it, expanded the program. And so when did you enter the air marshal program? 2006. So. It was, it's kind of weird. Right after 9-11, I got recruited to a contract that involved training the, uh, the first initial up-ramp of the Air Marshal Service. I didn't know what it was. Um, I was just, I met, uh, I was working with Mike Seekliner. Mike Seekliner was a fleet finance instructor in the academy of the Air Marshals. He's like, hey, dude, what are you doing right now? Can you, do, could you train? So since 2002, I've been involved somewhat in and out of the Air Marshal program, and that kind of started it. And initially, like you said, they were dumping a lot of money on it. Man, the guys that were coming in, the guys that were training, and I guess guys that were instructing with high-level quality guys, guys that just got back from deployment, um, specialized training. Because when you look at it on paper, it looked legit. Like, we're going to be going in to different countries. We're going to be doing this, and this is going to be the, the threats that we're going to be stopping. We need high-level guys. And, and till this day, Air Marshal has the highest pistol standard out there in any federal industry, right? Any federal agencies out there. Like that, that's a very high level because of the precision that we need and stuff like that. We are one of the, we are one of the ones, the agency that actually, you can lose your job if you can't pass the qualification, right? So you can get fired. Multiple people get fired. It's, it takes a, while, a lot, but multiple people are fired. So anyway, being, since, being part of the organization since 2002, but I jumped in with the Air Marshal to be official, uh, official as an agent, as a federal law enforcement officer since 2006. And then, and then my career ended in uh, 2015, um, resigned because I wanted to start my own business at that time. So that was, that was the only thing. Like, and that's a sad thing because I couldn't get my HR 218, my 10 year mm -hmm. I needed. I was like, hey, there's an opportunity for me to start my own business. And that was kind of one of the times where I decided to leave the government paycheck and start doing my own thing. In 2015, it took about three years. In 2018, my career blew up in the private industry. That's, that's kind of how it worked out for me. When did you come to Vegas? 2015. 
So that was after, that's what yeah. you left to go yeah. to. And you guys had a, a store in there. Did, yeah. did you open the store in 2015? Yeah. That was, that's what took me a, about a year. Like, that was a hellacious time of my career. Um, left and I had two kids where I had a one year old and a three year old. I remember because it was like the one year old and the three year old, like, we can't keep traveling. My wife was Secret Service, I'm Air Marshal. And then, although I had a ground based assignment at the time, they were going to pull me to headquarters in DC to do some sort of programming that I did. Like I said, I had a lot of influence in the training department of their Air Marshal, which was cool to have that, right? And have that experience. But be able to do that. And then they would pull me to DC. And then now living in DC with my kids and the whole government life just didn't seem appealing as much anymore because now my purpose is like try to be there for my family. And not, not as much as crazy, unpredictable travel schedule. And so, so we said, the gun store is the next thing. Like, I have an opportunity. I have a good friend, a partner of mine that we can go into this. And we're going to uh, do the luxury side of it. Vegas seems to be a cool place I can shoot and still can train and continue to, uh, to compete while I do this. And it'll free up some time. This and that. So anyway, my wife stayed in D.C. while I lived in Vegas. Um, she was in a presidential detail or vice president detail at that time. I had took care, taken care of the two kids. I could flex my schedule, but starting a business from ground up with not knowing how to do it was a nightmare. Yeah, it took, took us about a little while. Got it up and running, and it was a fun thing for a while. I learned a lot. Um, ended up closing down. I left 2019, four years into it, because my career was blowing up outside of that. I realized gun store is not my thing. I needed to be in the range teaching, and it felt a lot more. It filled my cup. Being in a gun store was great and felt something that I was doing right. People can visit and stuff like that, but I would never get work done because people would come in just to see me and hang out, and we'd sit there for like an hour talking, and then like another person would come in, and right, and then sometimes they'd buy, sometimes they don't, and then but yet paperwork is just getting piled up in the back, and then I would have to sit there and I'd bring it home with me, and now I'm take care of the one-year-old while working paperwork. It was just a nightmare to do, and then teaching always felt a lot more satisfying to me. It filled my cup. Besides competing, winning, and all that stuff, teaching was the other aspect to understanding and the purpose for why I do certain things and what I've done for all my life allows me to be able to now teach folks and help them and let them see the light and, and stop the struggle and stuff like that. And so once I started doing that and then got, got connected with a few SF units and stuff like that, I started training them. I'm like, man, this is it. Like, this is what I want to do. And so left in 2019, 2020 COVID hit. Um, they got the, their best year yet, but then at the same time, within that three, four months when they sold everything, they couldn't get replenished inventory. So it was just a gun store, $8,000 a month in rent that couldn't sell or had, didn't have any inventory. Didn't have products to sell. Yeah, because it was just, we were such a small store. Was, uh, I think $50,000, $100,000 a month um, account with RSR, a few other um, distributors out there, but we were too small that we were just getting allocations. We weren't getting the big allocations like other gun stores were. So... Eventually, the writing was on the wall. Even though I helped them with taxes and all stuff, even though I was no longer working, 2021, they decided to close it. They're just like, yeah, this is just too much now. They're just paying out of pocket and stuff like that. I was lucky. I, I was in Vegas when you guys did that. And, yeah, uh, yeah. I was, I was lucky. Right. I feel lucky that I was able to see it because it was unlike any other gun store. Like, it, it was what you would expect a gun store that had J.J. Ricasa as cool. a partner. It was luxury, high-end. Like, it had high nice end. stuff. It had yeah. competition gear. Uh, I mean, it was really cool. And the neatest thing was, like, it was completely normal to walk into that store and see you sitting in the corner doing a trigger job. Yeah, yeah. And it was just, that was cool to me, you know. It, it still is cool. You know, it's just something you don't see often. Do you know what a lot of things that you said that, too? Um, a lot of people used to say, because Jerry Mikulik would visit, Max Michel would visit, and we'd hang out, Doug Koenig, all these uh, Top level shooters, Bob Vogel, and people would see them in my store, and they'd be like, "Holy cow, that's Jerry Mikulik sitting there and just having a conversation." And I wouldn't have it in, in the back of my office. We'd sit in the middle of the gun store, just chit chatting, and you know, it's so people. That was the coolest part about it is that it brought a lot of these guys that are visiting shot show, doing demos. And they would just leave their stuff in my show because I've known them for 20 years, and they're like, "Hey, dude, just we'll ship it to your sh shop." And all. so that was a great experience at the time, and it's cool that you were there to be able to actually experience that. Okay, so you go from the guns to air marshals. That was kind of your initial training base. Yeah. And then gun store. And then now, as you said, training blows up, takes off. Um, how did you get, and maybe some people don't know, but you do a ton of stuff for LE, military, all different levels. Um, how did you get into that world with the military? Was that from people you knew back when you were air marshal? And there were SF guys or whoever saying, hey, 
He's in the private sector now. Let's get him in to do something. How does that work? It's, it's, it's a crazy story. Um, I got to give credit to everything from my contracting days to the air marshal. Like, that was meant for me to do what I do now. It was allowing me to flourish, um, get mentored correctly, learn how to teach from the lesson plans and learning how to follow EPOs to TPOs, right? Uh, enabling performance objectives, terminal performance objectives, and stuff like that. Learning how to teach the breakdown, the movement that I need to do and stuff like that. And allowed for me to be able to develop as an instructor. So they gave me a platform. But really, the, the, the initial start of it was... Um, just the word of mouth, right? I started teaching, and then once I left the government, I got a call from ATF, like, hey, we'd love to offer you this permanent gig over here in Glencoe, Fletzy, you run the program, this and that. I'm like, oh man, I'm starting a business. I can't take this, but I would love to take, that would be a dream job. Like, now I'm permanent, doing fire and stuff in the training academy. It's like, but it's like, I gotta try this first, right? And then I had till 40 to fail out in the industry, so I had five years to before I can come back to the federals. That was my fail safe, right? And so literally 2018 was a big year for me to, be, to make it happen, not only in sponsorships, but to make some sort of source of income, other source of income than, than just my sponsors and bonuses. So um, one day I got a call. It started out with this. I called um, Daniel Horner. He's a good friend of mine. He gave my name to one of the specific units that he trains, right? SF unit, top level unit, gave my name and said, hey, if you ever want to train pistol, this is the only guy to do. They listened to Daniel Horner. I got a call from a random 899 number. Hello, blah, blah, blah. He's like, hey, man, I'd love to set up training with you. And right now, at that point, I was starting, so my schedule was pretty open. I said, well, my wife is now in Vegas. I was like, hey, I'm dumping it to my wife. My wife can schedule this with you guys. No problem. This is our contact, blah, blah, blah. I go there, and I, I get there, and they literally said, this is your week to train us. Teach us whatever you need. I was like, holy cow, who am I training with? And they're like, well, this is the unit. And I'm like, oh. This is a big deal. I'm like, now I'm nervous. And they're like, what, are we, what do you want me to teach? And I said, just teach us. And I was like, what does that mean? Just teach. You got a week. And I said, well, if we like it, you'll come back. If we don't like it, um, not a, no harm, no foul. You can say that you've trained us or this unit, whatever. And it's all good. That means we just didn't like whatever you had to offer. But you have this week to, to figure it out. And I'm like, holy smokes. This is, I don't know. I've never been in anything like this. And I just taught. And luckily, I think I kind of flustered the first day. But the next four days, I was able to turn it around and, and crush it and, and talk about the concepts that I want to talk about and felt comfortable to teaching. And then they literally looked at me and they said, hey, man, good job this week. You'll be hearing from us. And from there, different, different unit, different quadrant, that word of mouth came out. And then it was like, all right. And then the more I taught, the more word of mouth came. And then it just blew up to the point now I don't have to source classes. It's like I get requested more than I, I have time. And my wife juggles that really, really well. But even then, like we've been t telling ourselves to slow down for the last three or four years. She's like, um, let's just do this one more year because it's so hard to say no to a, a military unit. It's so hard to say no to a, a law enforcement community. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now it's cool to be able to go to like Oklahoma, a, a little town in Oklahoma, and they have a SWAT team and they know me. It's like, I was like, how do you guys know me? It's like, oh, man, we've heard from you from this. We've heard from you from this. And it's like, I'm like, this is cool. I'm leaving more than just training. I'm leaving just more than my name. It's like the legacy that I'm mm -hmm. spreading out. And then the ripple effect of that is something that I can't even fathom, right? Like I teach 10, 20 guys that are top level in the unit, and then those guys are mostly instructors. Then they reach 30 to 40, hundreds of other academy, and they teach the same concept. And then I just see that spreading out. And then just the, that, that, that in of itself is, is something that, that really, truly fills my cup. So it's, it's, it's an awesome experience. It's a great career right now. It's unreal. That's awesome. One of the things, uh, you know, it's a trope in the gun world as old as time. You know, if you, gun games will get you killed in the streets, whatever. I think most thinking people have kind of put that stuff to bed. But what concepts are you teaching or, or do they find value in the, you know, special ops guys, SWAT dudes, Know, guys who carry a gun for a living to go into harm's way. Like, what are the concepts that they find value in from your background? My background as a competition shooter, the biggest thing that they hire me for is specifically for movement and efficiency. If I can find them and correct the way they move, because if I can correct the way they move, they can operate on a better platform, right? Um, it's, if we're standing still, you have a good solid foundation to shoot from. Your gun's just the only one moving. But now that you move your feet, the gun is also moving in accordingly. So if I have I've been able to to codify a bunch of things only because I was forced to. I was asked certain questions like, hey, how many steps? What is this called? This and that, so many years in time. And so in time, I was able to grow some sort of vocabulary in my training. And so a lot of that is based around concepts of efficiency, learning how to buy time without screwing up their accuracy, making them faster and make, make and, and, and not necessarily pulling a trigger, 
but everything they do with uh, before and after the bang, and then as well as moving into position, moving out of position, moving through an area and stuff like that. And that allows for them to be able to translate it to the tactical world. And if they're moving in with the team, this is the footwork that we would love to do as, as soon as we're getting too close to the door, the fatal tunnel, this is what we start to do and all this stuff. And then they apply the tactics. I apply the performance part of the shooting. So performance pistol shooting now literally will start to affect, or not necessarily, but positively affect the, the tactical world. So practical and tactical starts to come together. And, and that's funny because Early on, 2002, when I was in a contract, guys were like, hey, man, he goes, we'll just, you just do the demo. We'll talk about the tactics because competition at that time was still frowned upon. And the culture has changed as of late. And nowadays, it's a lot more accepted. It's like they're seeing the value of, if I can get and shoot fast like him and accurately, I can be a much more effective operator out there in the streets, right? whether you're law enforcement or special forces. So if I can save a half a second, that's a half second better to me and my team or someone else in the civilian world that can either save. My world is all about if I can do it faster and more accurate than the next competition guy, competitive guy, it's all about points and sponsors and, and bonuses for me and ranking. For them, it's about life and death versus uh, for them and their team or their, uh, some other civilian or their family. So. So that's the transla translation between there is the performance game of the pistol world. Mine, specifically efficiency and movement, um, is now merging into that world, which is pretty cool. Some of the instructors talk about, um, you know, Pranka preaches it pretty heavy, uh, is having that hard skill. And then I've heard other people talk about it as well, um, especially guards to CQB or things like that at a high level to where, like uh, Tyler Gray, I don't know if you yeah, know yeah, Tyler. Tyler yeah. so, uh, we used to do some stuff together, and he talked about, because I asked him a question, like what washed guys out once they made it through selection? Like once they got into the training portion, and I'm talking about uh, Delta, their OTC course, I asked him, like, what, what, what washed a lot of guys out? And he was like, it was CQB did the most damage that he saw. And it wasn't that the guys couldn't do the stuff. It wasn't that they weren't fit. It wasn't that they weren't smart. It was like they just couldn't process the information. Yes. There was so much information coming in, and then you have to make a decision and execute, whether it's a shot or whatever you're doing. But he called it bandwidth. And so that was the first time I heard that. And then over the years, I've heard that from different people from that world. They all talk about that bandwidth and that uh, ability to take in information. And that's where... I've heard it said over and over too about the shooting running in the background. So like you're not having to think, oh, I've got to hold my grip this way or you know, I, I have to align my sights or I have to prep my trigger. All that's happening and you're looking out and you're, you're making decisions, you're taking in information. And especially for cops on the street, man, because they see so much stuff every day that's different. Nothing's ever the same. Yeah. And, you know, they're bombarded by all these instant decisions, and then they're judged on it yeah. forever in slow motion on these decisions. But um, are you, is that something you try to teach or you believe in, is that that shooting should almost run at a subconscious level once you get to a certain level? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to get to a subconscious level, right? But there, there's a lot of things that you can do and, and, and instill certain things that you, you can start thinking less, right? Um, by doing a lot of reps. Uh, to me, I use myself as an example. I was, I was always just being a competition guy, but every single, once I got into the contracting world and once I got into the, the, the Department of Homeland Security and the law enforcement world, they started sending me to these classes and classes involve training tactics and linear work and all this stuff and um, try to become an instructor in, in, in that field because I was, I was they, they were pulling me as an instructor as opposed to as a field agent. So they were trying to get me to cover a lot more things, right? Like tactics, linear, CQB type stuff, right? Not ECQB in their term. Basically, our CQB was more of a learning how to gunfight, right? It's a crucible type stuff, learning how to use your elbow, bringing it in, learning how to uh, operate your gun within this, within this really close quarter distance. So what I realized was every class in school that I ever went to, um, the comments from the instructor, I would always get them random. I would always get pulled aside. It's like, hey, what's your background? Because we, no one, you haven't said anything, you haven't said much. I kept my mouth shut as much as I could. What's your background? I'm like, oh, I used to say computers, um, college guy. And he was like, no. He goes, what's your background? It's like a competition shooter. I'm like, oh, we figured that. It goes, either that or you were some sort of special force or you had former military background that had specialized training because the ability for you to process certain things, right? Because when I walk into a scenario, I can... I can not necessarily process, but I could go, I don't have to worry about the shot. I was like, if that's the last thing I need to do. I just needed to understand what was going on. I didn't have to be in a rush constantly. Having that sort of feeling, and I started to understand, talk to the guys that in my class, I go, hey, 
what were you thinking of when you got there? And a lot of guys were like, man, I don't, I don't know. There was not, I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? There was this guy that popped up. It's like, why did you pull your gun? And it's, I'll just talk to the students and stuff like that and instructor breakdown as well. And you see that. And the more you taught, the more I started to see that. And a lot of it was learning how to understand, like understanding that I can do whatever I need to do with a gun. That was a more natural thing. The scenario was just reacting to the scenario. And I didn't have to do things as fast because sometimes too fast was really bad. Like you can, the guy would present a camera like this and, and if you had your gun out, sometimes guys would just shoot because it was that distance, right? And they would shoot instead of processing what was happening. So I was like, man, as long as there it is, you, you, what, the problem is you have to react now and you have to understand the knowns versus the unknowns. In my world in competition, everything is known. I know where my targets are and on fast I need to shoot it. In a, in a dynamic scenario, I have to understand that I can now hurt other people by going too fast and not only hurt myself. Although I want to do things fast, I can't do two things too fast. I have to understand that there's good guys and bad guys. There's knowns versus unknowns. I don't know what's the next corner. I don't know where the next threat is. And those are the biggest things that I just had to focus on instead of doing this fast and doing this fast and thinking about where my sights are. I just understood like what distance I knew my sights. This is close distance. I don't even need to pull my gun and stuff like that. One specific scenario that I'll never forget that I got. Uh, this was cool because I could replay this over and over in my head because I got really complimented on this. It was a scenario where we were sitting on a, on a bus, a, a threat uh, come up, and so we lock in on it. I looked at my partner, it was good. And I remember just doing my, my cursory check and look around, and I saw the partner, the guy next to me, two, 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 uh, two, um, two seats down or whatever, it's, there's a, a passion between us, um, holding a knife, and I saw the handle, and I go, what the fudge, is that guy part of the scenario? And I go... Well, there's one threat there. He's far enough for me, but there's a threat here. He, they don't know where the police officers, this was a police officer situation. I'm like, there's a guy there. This guy has no idea. He's screaming or whatever. He's a parole player as well. I'm like, all right. So I have a threat next to me. I look back. There's no other threat. The, the, the guy's behind me bounce and run. This guy's just waiting for, he's, you can see he's looking at me because I'm playing the field as well. And I remember just, I was like, you know what? I have to dump, jump on there and either bounce into the aisle where I can get run over by all these role players running up and down, or I have to close in and attack him. But there's a guy between us, so I, I pretended to like cower in towards the, the guy, control the passenger, and as soon as I saw that I had a beeline to the knife, I just dumped it, I put my hand on it, and locked it in, and I just punched him in the face. <laughs> I punched him twice, boom, boom, and he's trying to fight me, and I remember trying to draw my gun, and this... This role player had no idea what was going on. So when I drew my gun, I went to go fire it from here two times, and the gun got caught in my vest. Boom, it fired one, and I saw the jam. And I remember this passenger was sitting there trying to grab me. I went to hit him with the face, and then I tap rack away from the, on the, on the armrest and fired again. And then I went and took the, whatever they call POD, position of dominance. And I said, please don't move, please don't move. Tap one, tap, he goes, holy shit. And he said, I remember, he remember the breakdown was the, the police officer and all that stuff. The instructors were like, man, that was really good that you caught that goodness. And the role player, like, what would you see? And the role player was like, man, yeah, things happened so fast. I thought he was part of the bad guy. And I knew the scenario. But he just jumped up and I saw the gun and he freaking hit me, calmed me down. I realized it. And he goes, he's getting up and running. And this guy was, he had the knife control that had one, one, even though he was no longer a threat, I kept my hand on it, put the knife down and all that stuff and got myself in position. Down. And that was one of the cool things that I didn't, I remember thinking about the scenario, not necessarily about my gun. The gun was the last thing I needed. And then now fast forward looking at all these, you know, with, with cell phones and mobile and, and cameras all over the place, so accessible. I'm starting to see like a lot of the cops because there's lack of training of the ability to do whatever they need to. It's like the gun comes out too fast, too soon sometimes, and the de-escalation doesn't work, or maybe just the panic of the, because a lot of it's just a lack of training. Like it always came down to training. Like there's a lack of training. If we can do more training, and that's why it's so proud, it's, it's an awesome thing for me to be able to be part of that. One of those um, guys that come out there and train a lot of law enforcement officers to be one of the front runners of that and just help out as much as I can. If I can, Show them other things that will help them and make them feel more confident. The better, the better they become as a as an executor of their job and stuff like that. So, hopefully, we're doing our job, and hopefully, I'm doing my job, and hopefully, you know, it translates well. Um, hopefully, they experience the, the success that I had experienced in the law enforcement. I was fortunate enough to never have to pull my gun out, and I just got into fights mostly and de-escalated a lot of things. And 
But you know, th there's all the other aspects to it. I knew I needed to be good with my hands. I knew I needed to be good with jujitsu because I got choked out by a girl <laughs> the first couple times I got in the ground. I'm like, who is this girl? Like, I don't know. I could just muscle her, but all of a sudden I'm getting tapped out left and right. So those are things that I was like, all right, I got to be more well-rounded. But that's hard as a law enforcement officer when you're running eight-hour, 12-hour shifts, plus overtime, this and that, on-call, detectives. You get complacent. You just think, I got my gun. I got my. Some people have a ton. Some people have OC spray. Some people just have the gun in their hands. And if you get in a situation, man, I hope you can handle yourself, whether just through hands or secondary or primary type of gun, whatever you need to do, and execute it really well and come home safe and not make a bad decision out there. Because a lot of it's really quick decisions that you need to make according to the scenario that you're given. It's not always 100 miles an hour. You might have to cruise at 50 first, right, and identify from there. All right, you mentioned something that uh, is very important for our members and it's something we've preached forever. And uh, that's de-escalation and avoidance. Uh, you win every fight you're not in. And I would imagine that being in a tube going 500 miles an hour in the air, it's pretty important to avoid as many confrontations as possible. So what was your experience just, you know, as an air marshal, as well as just, you know, you're in this training world, you, you, you live around, you know, a, a world filled with conflict, like, what are some of your opinions and takes and experiences about de-escalation and, you know, how important it is? I think before even de-escalating, understanding the situation awareness is a really big thing. Um, as a civilian, I think it's more, it's more important to understand what's going on around you as opposed to just getting locked in into your own world, walking into a situation, scanning the room or whatever it is. You don't have to be on yellow all the time. You can just be kind of relaxed and stuff like that, but understand the situation and knowing that things can happen and where's your quickest exit and stuff like that. I think that's a big thing. Getting yourself out of a situation before a situation even arises is a really, really big thing. A lot of people ask me nowadays, it's like, hey man, you know, you're, you know what you can do with a gun. Um, if there's ever a shootout there in, in, in the mall and you're with your family, would you um, go and try to end that fight? And I was like, as much as I'd love to be a hero and, and, and try to end that fight knowing my capability, there's always such thing called luck at the same time. So, right, I could, my job is to literally keep my, my family safe. If I can get out of a situation, I'm going to get us out of that situation and not get into anything because uh, that's no longer my priority. Um, as a law enforcement officer, it's a little bit different. i got to get into the fight, and that's totally different, right, because I'm in a different mode. Situational awareness is a big thing. The escalation was huge, huge thing. Understanding and learning how to talk, learning how to do it. Man, as dumb as it sounded, the verbal judo, they worked a lot. You would talk to somebody and you could just calm them down by just rotating words, repeating what they said, and never escalating what you needed to escalate. Or if they're yelling at you, you don't want to match that energy. You kind of try to work that in. That was always a big thing. When you don't have a backup, but you're, our backup was F-16s and, and those Raptors that would <laughs> blow us up out of the plane if things went really wrong, right? So learning yeah. how I never thought about that. That was our backup. Uh, and that was what they said. That gets hot and heavy if you don't do your job out there, right? Yeah. And then the FFDO program was also a good program because that was also another sense of background and the cockpit was safe. But they can do damage to the plane, the fuselage itself, if the air marshals don't do their job. So we needed to learn how to understand, like, hey, what situation are we allowed to get into? Because if we are getting into the situation, now we're bringing a gun into it, right? Like, and then there's a rule. One gun, if the gun comes out, the other gun needs to come out too. One gun, everyone's going out, right? Everyone's activating. So anyway, understanding the situation, understanding people, whether they're just drunk, is it something that flight attendants can handle? And a lot of times we would just post up in certain positions if something hairy was happening. We would close down certain areas of the airport, uh, airplane. We'd tell the flight attendants, like, this is no longer allowed. Like, right, the first class cabin, the, the bathroom is no longer used, it's, it's damaged, whatever, and we'd post a guy up there, or whatever it may be, like mid-galley, like this area right here, because we don't like this section. There's something going on. You know, like We just took a lot of precautionary steps, and that, a lot of those steps, whether it prevented from ever anything happening or like just dealing with a, a violent drunk or whatever, and using able-bodied passengers was also a really big thing. So you don't, you'd be like, hey, dude, I'm an air marshal. This is my police, I'm a police officer. Here's my badge, this and that. I don't need to get into this fight. I can hopefully use other people as buffer. And if they're willing to fight for me, I'd rather, I'd rather that and just stay, kind of stay. Because if I get in a fight and I somehow get knocked out, right, now the gun is available for them to use. And it, that's always the danger that we always had to worry about. So learning how to use words, learning how to de-escalate situation, if you found yourself in a situation, was such a more important thing than just learning how to be quick out of the holster. That's something else you mentioned there at the end about, you know, luck playing a part and it's you know 
as old as time, the enemy gets a vote and you know, you can be the best trained, you can be the strongest, you can be the fastest. And that's one of the things, you know, we try to tell members is that, you know, you have to understand that you can do everything right and still lose. And so you, you better pick those fights very carefully because, you know, once you cross over that line, now you've given up control. Yeah. You know, you, you can be as well-trained as you want, but not only have you given up control of, you know, your ability to just leave or walk away, and sometimes you don't have that choice. Sometimes you're yeah, put in that yeah. position and now you got to win the fight. But the other thing is, you know, legally, like now if you make a bad decision to get into a situation and you win, now you're still in trouble. Like, you know, you're facing, a, so, you know, you can yeah. go to prison. Yeah. And uh, so it's just that thing of and one of the biggest things we run into to this day is road rage. Yeah. And that, for the most part, is just that ego-driven thing of that guy, I'll show that guy. You know, it's, and people understand it. I think people are getting better at it. They're seeing it that, you know, there's just, there's no winner in that deal. And I used to get like, I, you know, I never got into road rage incidents, but I, I, you know, you're driving and somebody cuts you off and you get mad and all that. And after a while, I forget where I saw it, man. It was just one of those things to where it's like, you control how you feel. If you don't want to be mad, don't get mad. Yeah. Just, and, and that was one of the things, even to this day, I'll think, like, if something does that and I start feeling like I'm going to get ramped up, and then I think, hey, man, you got a pretty good life. Like, go live that. If that dude's having a terrible day, if he's, if he's just that miserable in his life, the world will take care of him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not going to get mad and get ramped up. And I think a lot of that comes with age, you know, for most people. But uh, one thing, one final thing I wanted to get into um, was you mentioned you do a lot of training with law enforcement and you have a partnership with Howitzer Clothing yeah. that does some really cool stuff. Um, one of the guys that we work with, Jeremy Ty, out in uh, Vegas, some of our guys out there, you were just out there for a week yeah. doing uh, training with Metro and a bunch of SWAT dudes. Yeah. And... Uh, a, a, re a record heat wave while you were out there, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But tell us about that uh, deal with Howitzer and how you're training LE guys. And by the way, you did all that week for no cost to the LE. None. Yeah, and it was it was cool because Jeremy said and the fire staff there said they, they they don't think they've ever had in their history multiple agencies like five or six agencies at one time training at one place. And it was good for their morale. It was good to be able to communicate with other agencies and work with each other and to see how the levels of training and stuff like that. And it was cool. That was another aspect that I didn't see coming. And Jeremy was telling me, he's like, man, that was really good training. The whole week was phenomenal for all of us, right? Um, for their staff and, and, and everyone in the, within that county. So we also, um, with Howitzer, the way this worked out was I met the owner. He was one of my students in one of the classes. And he's like, man, I really like the way you are as a person, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'd like to help out. I don't know what, but I'm going to help out. And I didn't know what he does or what he did. And then a few months later, he called me up and he said, hey, do you train law enforcement? I said, yeah. He goes, okay, let me pay anyone that says active law enforcement. If you find that out, send it my way. I'll pay their fee. I'm like, okay, sounds good. That's how it started. And then eventually, he's like, I found a, I found a, this program. I got this Project Blue Lion. And then this is going to be the thing. And I started this clothing company that it's going to fund this as well. Um, a percentage of it's going to go to this. So it's going to have money in it if I just do this right because he's a clothing guy, he's a business guy. So he's like, if I fund this correctly, do this correctly, he goes, this is going to get funded. And now whatever classes you have, active law enforcement, I want you to just send us, uh, let, send it to us, send us the group and just you know, we'll pay for it, cover it for free. I'm like, for free, for free. Like, what does free mean? He goes, all I have to do is show up in their time and their ammo and then a facility for you to train. And I go, no way, get out of here. So that little... That little thing that he started three, four years, four years ago, whatever it is, is now blown up. And I think we've had over $2 million worth of um, foundation, uh, funding towards active law enforcement training that we've done. Me alone, I'm a one-man show essentially in training. Um, I will be breaking over 1,000 uh, law enforcement, active law enforcement officers this year within just three years of training. It's, it's unreal. I've been training in law enforcement all my life, right? Thousands of those in academies and stuff like that. This is the first time where it's just, I'm not held by lesson plan. I go out there and I teach the way I want to teach and I, I cater the class according to that group that I get sometimes. It's like 
it's like Houston will do it. It's like, hey, send him some of our worst shooters and, and let's see what he can do with those. And then I'll work with the with their worst shooters and I'll help them give them trick, tech, trips and, uh, tricks and tips that I allow for me to flourish and seeing the experiences. And then the instructors get this, I, I force the instructors to work with me and then they see that and they go and they see the results. They're like, oh, this is a different way of approaching. So different technique and different style. And I think a lot of that's just because of, I've been training so long since 2002. Haven't stopped since the 20. 221 years of 23 years or whatever it is 21 years of experience and just teaching allowed for me to be able to see a whole lot of things right and so that that this program has been a phenomenal program that for, for the first program that I've been a part of where it's just gaining traction as we're moving forward the more we we do this the more the more funding it's getting, people are, are donating and stuff like that, supporting Howard Stern. They're just buying clothing and it supports this program as well. So it's it's becoming bigger and bigger. And now the it's crazy because now even if we started with like six classes per year, eight classes, and then 10 and now 15, now we're into 20 really? classes per year, just law enforcement alone. So my 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 entire demographic used to be like 80% civilian, 20% military. Like a very small percentage of that is uh, law enforcement within the civilian side. And then eventually it's now it's starting to take over. I think 50% of my training is law enforcement. About 30, 20, 30% of that is military and then like 20% civilian. So it sucks because that civilian, I'm, I'm only me, right? I only have so much time. Like I'm starting to fade away from the civilian side. I'm focusing more on this because this is more important right now. It seems like at least at the moment. I still want to do my civilian side, but this is starting to take over a lot more and more because of, because of the, what they're doing with the, the company and how much funding they're getting and stuff like that. And I'm getting so much more calls, not only from them alone, but just in, in general in contact. My wife gets an email. I get hit up on Instagram. It's like, hey, I have a law enforcement group over here. We'd love to train with you. Sounds good. Sounds good. So right after here, actually, I'm going to Utah. I'm training a bunch of SWAT guys or SRT guys over there as well. Right after this training, I go right right to it. I leave on Sunday, train Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I think, for uh, Project Blue Line. Well, that's awesome, man. Uh, I just want to say thanks for coming out. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. It's good to see you again. And uh, where can people find you? Like if they want – you don't really have a website, but say if somebody wants to train with you, how do they do that? So I, I, did, I do have a website now. It's, it's just fresh. It's like six months old. It's like jjrakazatraining.com. I think a lot of people can see my schedule there, and it's, it's, um, it's a really cool way. You can see information of the classes, the, 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 whatever it is. Um, you can sign up and all that stuff, or just find me on Instagram, jjrakaza, um, at jjrakaza. That's, that's, you can find me in there and then send me a message. I, it takes me a while sometimes because sometimes it gets bombarded with like random messages, but if I see it, I do reply as much as I can. Sometimes it just gets too much where I don't get time, but I will eventually get back to it. It may take me sometimes a few days, sometimes a week, sometimes a month to get back to it because there's so many folders now in Instagram the way they've done it. I have a primary, general requests and hidden requests, and then I have to see, see, uh, sift through all those. And there's a lot of noise, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot of meat in there as well. So I just got to make sure I do my work and just that's what I did last night for like three hours. I just sifted through messages and stuff. All right, brother. Awesome, man. Thanks, man. Thanks Appreciate for, always it. for having me. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, we'll see you next time.